0: Chapter One of the Birthplace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. The Birthplace by Henry James. Chapter One. It seemed to them at first the offer too good to be true and their friend's letter addressed to them to feel as he said the ground to sound them as to inclinations and possibilities had almost the effect of a brave joke at their expense their friend mr grant jackson a highly preponderant pushing person great in discussion and arrangement, abrupt in overture, unexpected if not perverse in attitude, and almost equally acclaimed and objected to in the wide Midland region to which he had taught, as the phrase was, the size of his foot, their friend had launched his bolt quite out of the blue, and had thereby so shaken them as to make them fear almost more than hope. The place had fallen vacant by the death of one of the two ladies, mother and daughter, who had discharged its duties for fifteen years. The daughter was staying on alone, to accommodate, but had found, though extremely mature, an opportunity of marriage that involved retirement, and the question of the new incumbents was not a little pressing. The want thus determined was of a united couple of some sort, of the right sort, a pair of educated and competent sisters possibly preferred, but a married pair having its advantage if other qualifications were marked. Applicants, candidates, besiegers of the door of every one supposed to have a voice in the matter, were already beyond counting, and Mr. Grant Jackson, who was in his way diplomatic, and whose voice, though not perhaps of the loudest, possessed notes of insistence, had found his preference fixing itself on some person or brace of persons who had been decent and dumb. The Gedges appeared to have struck him as waiting in silence. Though absolutely, as happened, no busybody had brought them, far away in the north, a hint either of bliss or of danger, and the happy spell, for the rest, had obviously been wrought in him by a remembrance, which, though now scarcely fresh, had never before borne any such fruit. Morris Gedge had, for a few years as a young man, carried on a small private school of the order known as Preparatory, and had happened then to receive under his roof the small son of the great man, who was not at that time so great. The little boy, during an absence of his parents from England, had been dangerously ill, So dangerously that they had been recalled in haste, though with inevitable delays, from a far country. They had gone to America, with the whole continent and the great sea to cross again, and had got back to find the child saved, but saved as couldn't help coming to light, by the extreme devotion and perfect judgment of Mrs. Gedge. Without children of her own, she had particularly attached herself to this tiniest and tenderest of her husband's pupils and they had both dreaded as a dire disaster the injury to their little enterprise that would be caused by their losing him nervous anxious sensitive persons with a pride as they were for that matter well aware above their position never at the best to be anything but dingy they had nursed him in terror and had brought him through in exhaustion Exhaustion, as befell, had thus overtaken them early, and had for one reason and another managed to assert itself as their permanent portion. The little boy's death would, as they said, have done for them, yet his recovery hadn't saved them, with which it was doubtless also a part of a shy but stiff candour in them that they didn't regard themselves as having been in a more indirect manner laid-up treasure. Treasure was not to be, in any form whatever, of their dreams or of their waking sense, and the years that followed had limped under their weight, had now and then rather grievously stumbled, had even barely escaped laying them in the dust. The school had not prospered, had but dwindled to a close. Gedge's health had failed, and still more, every sign in him of a capacity to publish himself as practical. He had tried several things, he had tried many, but the final appearance was of their having tried him, not less. They mostly, at the time I speak of, were trying his successors, while he found himself, with an effect of dull felicity that had come in this case from the mere postponement of change, in charge of the grey town library of Blackport-on-Dwindle, all granite, fog, and female fiction. This was the situation in which his general intelligence, acknowledged as his strong point, was doubtless conceived around him as feeling less of a strain than that mastery of particulars in which he was recognized as weak. It was at Blackport on Dwindle that the silver shaft reached and pierced him. It was as an alternative to dispensing dog's-eared volumes, the very titles of which, on the lips of innumerable glib girls, were a challenge to his temper, that the wardenship of so different a temple presented itself. The stipend name differed little from the slim wage at present paid him, but even had it been less the interest and the honour would have struck him as determinate. The shrine at which he was to preside, though he had always lacked occasion to approach it figured to him as the most sacred known to the steps of men the early home of the supreme poet the mecca of the english-speaking race The tears came into his eyes sooner still than into his wife's, while he looked about with her at their actual narrow prison, so grim with enlightenment, so ugly with industry, so turned away from any dream, so intolerable to any taste. He felt as if a window had opened into a great green woodland, a woodland that had a name, glorious immortal, that was peopled with vivid figures, each of them renowned, and that gave out a murmur, deep as the sound of the sea, which was the rustle in forest shade of all the poetry, the beauty, the colour of life. It would be prodigious that of this transfigured world he should keep the key. No, he couldn't believe it, not even when Isabel, at sight of his face, came and helpfully kissed him. He shook his head with a strange smile. We shan't get it. Why should we? It's perfect. If we don't, he'll simply have been cruel, which is impossible when he has waited all this time to be kind. Mrs. Gedge did believe, she would, since the wide doors of the world of poetry had suddenly pushed back for them, it was in the form of poetic justice that they were first to know it. She had her faith in their patron. It was sudden, but it was now complete. He remembers, that's all, and that's our strength. And what's his? Gedge asked. He may want to put us through, but that's a different thing from being able. What are our special advantages?" Well, that we're just a thing. Her knowledge of the needs of the case was as yet, thanks to scant information, of the vaguest, and she had never, more than her husband, stood on the sacred spot. But she saw herself waving a nicely-gloved hand over a collection of remarkable objects, and saying to a compact crowd of gaping, awestruck persons, And now, please, this way—' She even heard herself meeting with promptness and decision an occasional inquiry from a visitor in whom audacity had prevailed over awe. She had been once with a cousin, years before, to a great northern castle, and that was the way the housekeeper had taken them round. And it was not moreover, either, that she thought of herself as a housekeeper. She was well above that and the wave of her hand wouldn't fail to be such as to show it. This and much else, she summed up, as she answered her mate, Our special advantages are that you're a gentleman. Oh, said Gedge, as if he had never thought of it, and yet as if, too, it was scarce worth thinking of. I see it all, she went on. They've had the vulgar. They find they don't do. We're poor and we're modest, but any one can see what we are. Gedge wondered. Do you mean more modest than she he didn't know quite what she meant we're refined we know how to speak do we he still suddenly wondered but she was from the first surer of everything than he so that when a few weeks more had elapsed and the shade of uncertainty though it was only a shade had grown almost to sicken him her triumph was to come with the news that they were fairly named we're on poor pay though we manage she had, on the present occasion, insisted on her point. But we're highly cultivated, and for them to get that, don't you see, without getting too much with it in the way of pretensions and demands, must be precisely their dream. We've no social position, but we don't mind that we haven't, do we? A bit. Which is because we know the difference between realities and shams. We hold to reality, and that gives us common sense, which the vulgar have less than anything, And which yet must be wanted there, after all, as well as anywhere else. Her companion followed her, but musingly, as if his horizon had within a few moments grown so great that he was almost lost in it and required a new orientation. The shining spaces surrounded him, the association alone gave a nobler arch to the sky. Allow that we hold also a little to the romance. It seems to me that that's the beauty, We've missed it all our life, and now it's come. We shall be at headquarters for it. We shall have our fill of it. She looked at his face, at the effect in it of these prospects, and her own lighted as if he had suddenly grown handsome. Certainly, we shall live as in a fairy tale, but what I mean is that we shall give, in a way, and so gladly, quite as much as we get. With all the rest of it, we're, for instance, neat. Their letter had come to them at breakfast and she picked a fly out of the butter-dish it's the way we'll keep the place with which she removed from the sofa to the top of the cottage piano a tin of biscuits that had refused to squeeze into the cupboard at blackport they were in lodgings of the lowest description she had been known with the freedom felt by blackport to be slightly invidious to declare the birthplace and that itself after such a life was exaltation wouldn't be lodgings, since a house close beside it was set apart for the warden, a house joining onto it as a sweet old parsonage is often annexed to a quaint old church. It would altogether be their home, and such a home as would make a little world that they would never want to leave. She dwelt on the gain, for that matter, to their income, as obviously, though the salary was not a change for the better, the house given them would make all the difference. He assented to this, but absently, and she was almost impatient at the range of his thoughts. It was as if something for him, the very swarm of them, veiled the view, and he presently of himself showed what it was. "'What I can't get over is its being such a man,' he almost from inward emotion broke down. "'Such a man? Him, him, him! It was too much.' "'Grant Jackson, yes, it's a surprise, but one sees how he's been meaning all the while the right thing by us.' "'I mean him,' Gedge returned more coldly. "'Our becoming familiar and intimate, for that's what it will come to. We shall just live with him.' "'Of course, it is the beauty,' and she added quite gaily. "'The more we do, the more we shall love him.' No doubt, but it's rather awful. The more we know him, Gedge reflected, the more we shall love him. We don't as yet, you see, know him so very tremendously. We do so quite as well, I imagine, as the sort of people they've had. And that probably isn't, unless you care as we do, so awfully necessary. For there are the facts. Yes, there are the facts. I mean the principal ones. They're all that the people, the people who come, want— Yes. They must be all they want. So that they're all that those who've been in charge have needed to know. Ah, he said, as if it were a question of honour, we must know everything. She cheerfully acceded. She had the merit, he felt, of keeping the case within bounds. Everything. But about him, personally, she added, there isn't, is there, so very, very much. More, I believe, than there used to be. They've made discoveries. It was a grand thought. Perhaps we shall make some. Oh, I shall be content to be a little better up in what has been done. And his eyes rested on a shelf of books, half of which, little worn but much faded, were of the florid gift order and belonged to the house. Of those among them that were his own were common specimens of the reference sort, not excluding an old Bradshaw and a catalogue of the town library. "'We've not even a set of our own, of the works,' he explained in quick repudiation of the sense, perhaps more obvious, in which he might have taken it. As a proof of their scant range of possessions, this sounded almost abject, till the painful flush with which they met on the admission melted presently into a different glow. It was just for that kind of poorness that their new situation was, by its intrinsic charm, to console them. And Mrs. Gedge had a happy thought. "'Wouldn't the library more or less have them?' "'Oh, no, we've nothing of that sort. For what do you take us?' This, however, was but the play of Gedge's high spirits, the form both depression and exhilaration most frequently took with him, being a bitterness on the subject of the literary taste of Blackport. No one was so deeply acquainted with him, It acted with him, in fact, as so lurid a sign of the future that the charm of the thought of removal was sharply enhanced by the prospect of escape from it. The institution he served didn't, of course, deserve the particular reproach into which his irony had flowered, and, indeed, if the several sets in which the works were present were a trifle dusty, the dust was a little his own fault. To make up for that now, he had the vision of immediately giving his time to the study of them. He saw himself, indeed, inflamed with a new passion, earnestly commenting and collating. Mrs. Gedge, who had suggested that they ought, till their move should come, to read him regularly of an evening, certain as they were to do it still more when in closer quarters with him, Mrs. Gedge felt also, in her degree, the spell— so that the very happiest time of their anxious life was perhaps to have been the series of lamplight hours after supper in which alternately taking the book they declaimed they almost performed their beneficent author he became speedily more than their author their personal friend their universal light their final authority and divinity where in the world they were already asking themselves would they have been without him by the time their appointment arrived in form, their relation to him had immensely developed. It was amusing to Morris Gedge that he had so lately blushed for his ignorance, and he made this remark to his wife during the last hour they were able to give to their study, before proceeding, across half the country, to the scene of their romantic future. It was as if, in deep, close throbs, in cool afterwaves that broke of a sudden and bathed his mind, all possession and comprehension and sympathy all the truth and the life and the story had come to him and come as the newspaper said to stay it's absurd he didn't hesitate to say to talk of our not knowing so far as we don't it's because we're donkeys he's in the thing over his ears and the more we get into it the more we're with him i seem to myself at any rate he declared to see him in it, as if he were painted on the wall. "'Oh, doesn't one rather, the dear thing? And don't you feel where it is?' Mrs. Gedge finally asked. "'We see him because we love him. That's what we do. How can we not, the old darling, with what he's doing for us? There's no light,' she had a sententious turn, "'like true affection.' "'Yes, I suppose that's it.' And yet, her husband mused, I see, confound me, the false. That's because you're so critical. You see them, but you don't mind them. You see them, but you forgive them. You mustn't mention them there. We shan't, you know, be there for that. Dear, no, he laughed. We'll chuck out anyone who hints at them. End of chapter 1